chapter 4 is a turning point, maybe the most significant turning point of the Megillah. Let's begin. The chapter 4 begins, Mordechai Yoda et kol asher nasa. That's chapter 4. Mordechai knew all that was transpiring. Mordechai knew because he's in the court, and Mordechai knew because he's the cause of this problem. He tears his clothing, puts on sackcloth. So he went into the Betocha'ir, in the middle of the city, and he cried out with a great and bitter cry. That expression, by the way, we have encountered previously in the, in the Torah. Who knows? What do you have by Isaac Zakar Gedolah Umara? Esav. When Esav hears what his brother has done, taking his blessing, by Isaac Zakar Gedolah Umara. And that actually is very important because the Megillah, among other things, is playing off the animosity between Esav and Yaakov. Esav, who at least one channel of Esav, is Amalek. Haman is the Agagi. Agag is the king of Amalek. So the Megillah, on several occasions, is making references to Amalek or Esav. And in this case, one connects it, of course, to the story of Esav. In this particular case, it's Mordechai who's crying out with a very bitter cry. He realizes that what the situation is. And the next pasuk is interesting. He went up to the gate of the king. Because one cannot enter the gate of the king wearing sackcloth. Now the question is, what do we make of that statement? What is the significance? Why does the Megillah tell us this? He went up to the gate, but not in the gate. Mordechai was previously in the Sharamelech. That's where he hears about Bigton Vateresh. That's where he refuses to bow down to Haman. He went up to the, up to the gate, but not, not in the gate. Because one may not enter the gate of the king wearing sackcloth. So there are several interesting features of this pasuk. First of all, there is this idea in the Megillah. The, the king in the Megillah is Achashverosh, and Achashverosh has a palace, palaces, etc. So there are rules about the palace. So what, the first rule we have in this chapter is that you're not allowed to enter the gate of the king if you are in sackcloth, if you are in mourning. One who's in mourning is not permitted to enter the gate of the king. And that sort of reinforces the idea that the gates, the palaces of Achashverosh, bear a striking similarity to the uh, Beit HaMikdash or the uh, Mishkan. And in fact, in this chapter, there's also another rule about Achashverosh's palace, and that is, you can only enter the innermost chamber if you're called. Not allowed to enter the innermost chamber. And this reminds us as well of the Beit HaMikdash, of the Mishkan, of the Avoda, Kodesh Kadashim, there are all kinds of restrictions. So the, the Megillah is playing off that as well. That's number one. But number two, in terms of this Pasuk, he went up to the gate, but he couldn't go into the gate because he's wearing sackcloth. So from this we can infer, I think, something very important about the story, which is, first of all, we can infer, pretty almost explicit, that actually... Were he able to go into the gate, he in fact would go into the gate. He can't, because he's wearing sack, but were he able to do it, he himself would go into the gate. And the reason for that is presumably because 
at the end of the day, the immediate cause of the problem is Mordechai himself. In fact, the fact that Mordechai was, was in the gate was the problem. Because if Mordechai were not in the gate, he wouldn't have to bow down to Haman. Only people in the gate have to bow down to Haman. And Mordechai initially was not in the gate, he was in the city. Only after Esther becomes the queen do we discover him in the gate. So it means that actually it would be incumbent upon Mordechai, were he able, to go into the gate. But he can't go into the gate because he's wearing sackcloth. And from this we can infer a second very important point about the story. point is, why is Mordechai wearing sackcloth? He's wearing sackcloth because he's a Jew. In fact, the chapter will tell us that everybody is wearing sackcloth, all the Jews. Right? Let's just a few couple of psukim later. In the third verse, So the Megillah says that in every place where the king's decree would reach, there's great mourning for the Jews, fasting, crying, So sackcloth, people are wearing sackcloth. Everybody's wearing sackcloth. All the Jews are wearing sackcloth. So it means that in this particular situation, if you're a Jew, you can't actually save the Jews. Because the only way to save the Jews is to enter the gate, to, to get access. But as a Jew, you have no access. So the only person who could save the Jews, actually, would be somebody who's not Jewish, who's not wearing sackcloth. Now, in this chapter, there's only one such person who seems completely oblivious to the situation. And I, I might say even more than oblivious to the situation. Initially, does not seem terribly concerned about the situation. Of course, that's Esther, as we'll see shortly. So, Mordechai would like to go into the gate, and I add, Mordechai should go into the gate, right? But Mordechai can't go into the gate, because he's Mordechai the Jew. So from where will the salvation come, if Mordechai can't enter the gate? So he has to contact somebody who's already inside, and that, of course, will be Esther. Yes? So just to go back for a second to this quote that this part starts off with, that's an Aesop quote. Yes. And in the Aesop story, in my mind, you know, there's this idea that Yaakov put on this fur of an animal to fool Yitzhak. And so yeah. there's, I'm, I'm wondering what the connection is that you make between Aesop's experience with this quote and with this quote being, I mean, they, the author wants us to think about Aesop. So the question is, why connect us to that story here? Does it have something to do with the fact that it's a commentary in some way, that maybe Mordechai didn't do the right thing by being in the gate and starting this whole thing to begin with? Well, I don't know if he did the right thing or the wrong thing. By entering the gate, he assumes upon himself certain responsibilities to abide by the rules of the gate. So, in a certain sense, I don't think he does the wrong thing by, by not bowing down. That I think is completely not correct. He can't bow down to a Amalek. But the only reason he has to bow down in the first place is he put himself in the gate. So I think that it's a problem. Now, in terms of the Ace of connection over here, the way I've, I've discussed it many times in the past, and what I suggest is the following, that Amalek, there are two Amaleks. There's the, um, maybe even more than two. There's, there's one Amalek who is essentially an instantiation of the primal snake, of the Nachash, of the enemy of God. That's one Amalek. And that snake, actually, is God's enemy. And by extension, the enemy of all humanity, 
as God says, the Nachash would be in constant enmity to the woman and the woman's descendants, Ben Zarachal, Ben Zarah, etc. That's one Amalek. But then there's another Amalek who's actually Esau's grandson. Now, that Amalek is the enemy of the Jews. That's nothing to do with the rest of the world. That's the enemy of the Jews. And what I suggest about Amalek is this, that actually, when you read the story of Yaakov, both in terms of the birthright and in terms of the blessing, what is clear that in those two stories, whatever you think about, he should do it, he shouldn't do it, this and that, in point of fact, what Yaakov does in both of those stories is he takes advantage of people's vulnerabilities. He takes advantage of Esau's vulnerability in terms of he waits till he comes back very tired from the field. And he's cooking up this whole food. And he gets him to sell the birthright, etc. And in the second story, with the blessing, he takes advantage of his father's blindness. So in each of those cases, it's someone who takes advantage of the other person's weakness to achieve some, some kind of benefit. Now, in point of fact, in the Yaakov story, that's chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 25 and 27, actually, but then later in the Chumash, you have this business with Yaakov coming back from the house of Ravan, and Yaakov is wrestling with this angel, and Yaakov is um, transformed. So what I suggest is that Amalek, then Yaakov says to Esau, listen, take his gift, take my gift, etc. Esau initially refuses, then he accepts it. And my point about Esau and Amalek is that Amalek is the piece of Esau who doesn't actually accept the transformation. Amalek believes that the Yaakov that confronts Esau in chapter 32, 33, is the same Yaakov of chapter 25 and 27. And Amalek basically attacks Israel by taking advantage of their, of their vulnerabilities. So, that's the Amalek. The Amalek is one who doesn't accept the idea of transformation, and the Amalek is the piece of Esau that is unwilling to accept Yaakov on any level and still thinks of Yaakov as Yaakov is earlier. And in point of fact, in the Megillah, it's exactly what Haman says to the king in chapter 3. There's a people out there, There's a people that are scattered and dispersed throughout all the states of your, of your kingdom. And they have their own rules, their own laws. It's not worthwhile to keep to leave them alone. So if it please the king, let it be written to destroy them. But the point of Haman, he emphasizes, they're scattered and dispersed. In other words, they're weak, they're vulnerable, they're easy to attack. Don't have their own state. They're scattered amongst all the other states, but they have no, don't have their own state. So they're very easy to defeat. And that's an Amalek. That's an Amalek quality. To attack people's vulnerabilities. So I think over here, the recalling of the Ace of Story is reminding us of what, what actually generates, well, one of the factors that is generating uh, Amalek to begin with. That's what I believe this is. All right, so now one could have a slightly other formulation about why Mordechai wants to go back to the same place. He wants to go back to the same place because that's the place where he created the problem to begin with. If you want to correct something, you go back to the same place. So that's a slightly different formulation. In any event, Mordechai knows exactly what's happening. Mordechai wants to solve the problem, but he can't. He can't go and shout at Melech. So what he does, then the, the Megillah adds, 
Evo gadol ayudim tzon b'chiyum ispeid. Sakva efer yudzaga rabim. This verse actually raises a problem. This verse number three raises a problem. The question is, Megillah doesn't actually say. The question is, when does all this take place? When is this happening? So we know that the, the lot was cast in the first month, right? And it sounds like it's cast on the 13th day of the first month, right? 13th day of the first month. So that's Yud Gimel Nisa. Now the question is, when does Mordechai do this? When does Mordechai go into the street and cry out? When is he doing this? Is it happening immediately? So there is an opinion in the rabbinic tradition that happened right away. And that in fact Esther is called upon immediately. And Esther asked the Jews to fast for three days. Which means that the Jews are fasting on the 14th of Nisan, on the 15th of Nisan, on the 16th of Nisan, which basically is Pesach. Now the truth of the matter is that the Megillah never says that this is immediate. We have no idea. So how would, all the, how would the word have gotten? This is exactly my point. How would the word have gotten around if in fact it happened? This verse suggests, either suggests that it, that it took place later, or maybe it's not suggesting that, but it's just making a separate statement. In general, whenever Jews heard the news, maybe in a month, maybe in two months, whenever Jews heard the news, they would all, every Jew would automatically fast and cry and, and wear sackcloth. But this is the question. The question is, when did it actually take place, you know? Yeah. It's actually an interesting question. I'll come back to this in a, in a minute because of the next couple of psukim. So now it says, Vatovona narota stev sarisera veyagidula vatit chalchal hamalkamaod. So the maidens of Esther her officers, maidens, or the eunuchs, told her about this. So it's not clear what they told her. Did they tell her that Mordechai is in the street and he is wearing sackcloth? They certainly told her that, because she sends clothing to get him dressed. Or did they tell her more than that? Because the previous verse says every place, all the Jews are wearing sackcloth. Did they tell her that in general, many people are wearing sackcloth? Now, there's a big difference between those two possibilities, which I'll come to in a moment. There's a very important distinction between those two possibilities, each of which is totally plausible. If we assume that Vayagidullah follows both verse 2 and 3, number 1 and 1, that Mordechai is wearing sackcloth and all, all Jews are wearing sackcloth, then what's very striking is, Batishlach begodim l'albishet Mordechai u'asir sako me'ala v'lo kibel. She sends clothing to dress Mordechai. So the point is, her concern is Mordechai. She doesn't seem concerned, or she doesn't relate to anybody else. She's relating to Mordechai. She, whatever the problem is, she's saying to Mordechai, in effect, I can solve your problem. I can't solve anybody else's problem. But as far as you're concerned, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. She doesn't know the whole story yet. But my point is that What's striking is that, what about all the other Jews? In other words, if you read it this way, that she knows what's happening, but she only sends clothing to Mordechai, that suggests to us that she feels, for whatever reason, that she can't do much for anybody else, or she doesn't care to do much for anybody else. It's not her problem. But Mordechai, her cousin, her father figure, her mentor, etc., that's another story. But Veloki Bell. 
Mordechai refuses to accept, right? He refuses to accept the Kovin. He refuses to separate himself from all the other Jews, basically. So Mordechai is saying, it's not about me. It's about the Jewish people, and I'm not going to accept. She's trying to console him in some sense. I'm going to take care of you. And Veloki Bell, he refuses to accept it. So now, Esther is puzzled by this. Esther called the Hatach. Now, the word Hatach is a strange word, actually. And here, the translation of this, whatever it is, they have H-A-T-H-A-C-H, Hatach. Some kind of a messenger or whatever it is. It's a name. And, and Rashi says who it is. Daniel, but the point is, it's certainly that doesn't sound that Hatach is a name to me. It's no, the word Hatach is probably related to a different word, which is a very important word in the Chebuchim word Toch. Toch or Mitavech. I mean, actually, in modern Hebrew, a Mitavech is a broker or a go-between. And the point is, the Hatach is a is a go-between. So she called the go-between, whether it's his name or not his name, who knows? But the point is. She calls someone to be the go-between between herself and um, and Mordechai. She wants to understand what this is. So she has apparently some trusted person that she sends to Mordechai. She wants to know. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. The chapter began by saying, Mordechai knows everything that's going on. And now the Chapter says, as far as Esther is concerned, Wadat Mazer, she doesn't know. She wants she wants to understand. Wadat Mazer, what is this actually about? So the Hatach goes to Mordechai, to the Rehova ear is this, the main street, Broadway. Rachav means broad, so the Broadway to the main the main place. In front of the king's gate. Mordechai can't go into the gate. He goes next to the gate. He can't enter it. Mordechai said to him, Now that expression, appears in the Megillah later as well. Uh, It appears when Haman comes home after he had a parade Mordechai around the city. Back in in chapter 6. Let's find that verse. And Mordechai is very, uh, Haman's very upset about that. He has to parade him around. And in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse number, verse number 13. Vayisaper Haman v'zeresh ishto l'cho o'havav et kol asher karahu. So we have twice in the book. In chapter 4, Mordechai says to Esther, kol asher karahu, what has befallen him. And in chapter 6, when Haman has to parade Mordechai around, he says to he comes back very dejected and he tells his people a koasher karahu. So this expression koasher karahu is hardly an accident, and actually it plays off a very important uh, pasuk in the Chumash. Right? Torah says in the book of Devarim, Zohar, we have to remember koasher asalucha amalek baderech betzetchemi mitzrayim. What Amalek did on the path when you left Mitzrayim. They encountered you upon the way. It's interesting, by the way, that Amalek, just as a side point, when we left Egypt and Amalek attacks, it's very striking because Amalek doesn't, it's not that we went through Amalek's territory. 
they actually encountered us. They encountered us. They went out of their way. Apparently, that's a shakarcha baderech. So the so the Megillah, of course, keeps alluding to the Amalek story, which is the center of the Megillah. Now, I'll get to why it's so significant. Not today, though, but it's very interesting. So Ashokarcha Karahu, of course, is playing off the Amalek story. In this particular case, Mordechai says Kolasha Karahu. What happened to him? It means what happened to him in terms of Amalek, Haman, etc. The eight parashat kesef, Asher Omar Haman Rishkol, Algenzei Hamelech Bayudim Liabdam. And parashat kesef. See how they translate parashat kesef? Here they translate, here they say the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasuries for the annihilation of the Jews. Here, actually, there's a very interesting problem in the Megillah. The Haman goes to the king in chapter 3 and says, you know, there's these people out there, they're very scattered and dispersed, not worthwhile to keep them alive, they have their own rules, don't keep your laws, etc. Let it be written to destroy them. And I, says Haman, will bring in 10,000 kikar kesef. Some humongous sum, actually. Aseret alafim kikar kesef. Kikar is a term we encounter in the Torah. 10,000 kikar is, is an enormous uh, amount of money. 10,000, here they just silver talents is how they translate it here, into the hands of those who perform the duties for deposit in the king's treasury. So the question is, what does that mean? The money is yours. And the people to do whatever you want. What does it mean the money is yours? Is he saying, don't bother with the money. Forget the money. You don't have to pay any money. You can do what you want to do without the money. Some interpret it that way. But it strikes me that that can't be right, actually. Because if that were the case, why wouldn't Mordechai tell Esther about the parashat ha-kesef, Why would he mention it if there is no money involved? The king says, forget the money. So I don't think it means that, actually. I think the better interpretation is something else. Which is what, what Haman wants, actually. What Haman says to the king, I will bring in... Haman wants the killing of the Jews to be official state policy. So what he says is, I will bring into the treasuries the money needed to eliminate all the Jews. And the king says, doesn't mean you can keep the money. You know means not tunuach, I give you permission to use the money and to do whatever you want with his people. But the point is, the king accepts the offer to, and presumably some of that money will stay in the treasury. Now 10,000 talents of silver is some enormous amount of money. I don't know what it comes to in today's terms. Trillions of dollars. They're talking about some... The McGill has these fantastic exaggerations. You know, 180-day parties. You know, doesn't matter. The point is, it doesn't sound from this verse that the king had said, forget about the money. It sounds quite the opposite. Now, 
לבוא המלך מתחנן לו ולבקש מלפניו על המס. מורדכי instructs the go-between to show that he has a decree. Esther is not aware of this apparently. He has shows the decree. It's written on the walls. It's on the, on the walls of Shushan. And show it to her, explain it to her. And then it says, and he commands to her. He's commanding her to go to the king and to beg the king for her people. That's the Mordechai, till this point in the book, is, is commanding Esther what to do when she listens. And she listened before she was queen. And it says in chapter 2, she even listened to Mordechai after she's queen. So Mordechai continues in the same vein over here. He's a mentor, father figure, whatever it is, kind of parent. So he commands her what to do. He's telling, he says, go tell Esther what to do. But he commands her. So Atach returns to Esther. And presumably he tells Esther all of Mordechai's words. So he says everything. So Esther says, speaks to the Hatach, and commands him concerning Mordechai. So Esther sends back to Mordechai. She says, everybody knows. All the servants of the king know. And all the peoples of the states know. And any man or woman who enters into the inner chamber without permission, who hasn't been called, there's one rule. Except if the king extends the scepter. And I haven't been called for 30 days. There's no... There's no reason to assume I'll be called, she says. In short, I can't do it. I can't enter. Because I'll be killed. Because that's the rule, the dot. The rule is that whoever enters without permission, So that's Esther's response to Mordechai's command is to tell Mordechai it's not, it's, not, it's not possible. So here, there's something very interesting about what she says, and that is the following. She seems to emphasize over here First of all, the chapter begins by saying, Mordechai knows everything that's happening. That's how it starts, right? Mordechai knows. Then in the middle, Esther doesn't know what's happening. So she sends someone to Mordechai to find out. And now, when Mordechai says, go to the king and beg him for your people, so Esther says, how, we can't do that. Everybody knows you can't do that or the servants of the king, or the peoples of the states. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that you can't just walk into it. So what's interesting is, who knows what? That's what's interesting. Mordechai, what does Mordechai know? Mordechai knows what's happening to the Jewish people. You know, he gets a, gets a newspaper, or whatever it is, internet, Times of Israel, or, or you read any paper, what's happening with the Jews, the Mideast, the Jews, etc. The first thing. And you see the other news afterwards, you know. It's Mordechai. He doesn't hide it either. He tells Haman, he says, He doesn't hide it. Esther doesn't seem to know anything about what's happening to the Jews. Either she doesn't know or doesn't seem to care terribly much. She cares about him. She sends calling to him. But she knows something else. 
all the protocols of the court. Everybody knows, she says. You can't do that. So who was everybody is the question, you know what I mean? Who was everybody? And there, in this use of the word to know, you have what's very central to the story. You have people who are completely different places. You have Mordechai the Jew on one hand, you have Esther the queen on the other hand, who is uh, now for several years living with the king. Nobody knows she's Jewish. Nobody knows she's but how do you actually conceal that? It's very, you know what I mean? It's very hard to believe you can actually conceal for such a long time that you're a Jew. So obviously, her connection to her Jewishness is, let's say, very uh, weak. So we know there's no manifestation of it. Everybody knows you can't do that. That's number one. Number two, there's something else in what she says that I find very striking. Which is, what is the reason that, that she gives why you can't do it? So the plain reason is what she says. I can't do it because I'm, I'm going to get killed. If I walk into the king without permission, I'm going to be, I'll be I'll get killed. Everybody's put to death. So it's not practic- from a practical standpoint, I can't, I can't do it. That's one possibility, which is certainly true. But I, I'm, I'm hearing here something additional in what she says, which is one really the critical idea of the chapter, in my view. She says something different. I can't do it because it's against the dot. It's against the law. And the idea of dot, this idea of law in the Megillah, is tied in with the idea that something is faded or something is determined. You can't change the law. This is the rule. The rule is, the rule is immutable. can't be changed. We encounter this later in the Megillah when Esther goes to the king and says, listen, we... We call those letters that you sent out killing all the Jews. It was sealed with the king's seal, he says. How can we retract it? Can't change it. Okay, we'll issue a second contradictory. We'll get to that. But the point is, I wonder if what Esther is saying, it's not just that it's dangerous, but she's saying something else, like a good Persian. I can't do it. It's against the law. Achat tol So That's a different idea. Yes? I'm just thinking, from what I know about this kind of situation. I always thought she was married to the king. She was part of a harem. Right. And there would be hundreds of women from diverse backgrounds in this harem. And No doubt. Maybe more than hundreds. Who knows? Yeah. But she has a very privileged, well, she had a privileged position. You know, you can lose that very quickly too, you know. Exactly. But, but she hasn't, she's, I haven't been called for 30 days, whatever the reason is. The king doesn't lost interest in me or whatever. And they're all juggling around the situation in which they're hoping they'll give birth to an heir in which they will be powerful themselves. So, okay. the mercy of the situation. Right, so but what's the point in terms of not going into the king? She says why. I'll I, I, I get killed. She says, says additionally, it's against the law. You can't, you can't break the law. Laws, laws unbreakable. That's what she says. Mordechai is a different thought. Yeah. Um, but because she adds on, and listen up, um, the king may not desire me any longer. Um, presumably when she says and she caps that at verse 11 which is her whole argument her legal argument and her last sentence in her argument to Mordechai is I mean it's three parts it's dangerous it's against the dot and furthermore he may not desire me with the same ardor that he desired me when perhaps I could have broken any of these laws and gotten around it either in bedtime talk right. or either in around the kitchen or something 
I think the fact that she adds that as the third piece, I actually think that's critical. And I think it's important because it's Esther and not a man. Okay? The fact of her womanness, okay, is is critical to the whole story. She's not a eunuch. She's not a neutral character. She's a female. And and from here on in, it's her figuring it out in a nonlinear way, which is what Mordechai would have done, gone straight in. It's not just you got gotta really help my people and then Ahasuerus would have said what? Nothing, or laughed at her or deposed her. So the fact that she adds that third piece which is, she injects the fact that she is concerned and strategically Mordechai, even if I could go overcome Roman numeral one and two, you know, I may not have that privilege that we were just I, accept that, yeah. I think it's critical that that was stuck in there. I don't right. think it's an accident I, at all. Well, there are no accidents, no, but I, no I think accident. that... But it's important to her argument. It's one, two, three, and she ends with that one. And right. it, echoes, it echoes if you wait two seconds and you hear it. And remember, it's not a direct conversation between Mordechai and Esther. Right. There's time. There's time between it because you've got the, the intermediary. So she tells her, now tell him this and tell him this. And so percolate in Mordechai's mind. Okay. I accept that. Right. Thank you. Then they told Mordechai what Esther had said. So Mordechai said to reply to Esther. Don't imagine, he says, that you will escape in the palace from all the Jews. If you are silent at this time, so salvation, redemption, salvation, will come from a different place. And you and your father's house will be destroyed. He's probably referring to himself as well. Who knows? Who knows? He says, perhaps for this very purpose, for a time such as this, you have arrived at the kingship. What's Yosef? That idea that when he says to his brothers, this was God's plan. Right. That is right. That's true. So what is this actually... So there's a couple of very interesting things over here. The once again the text is recalling. I'll, I'll leave it out for now. This too complicated. Let me say something else. Mordechai says the following: Who knows? He says, perhaps for this very reason you became the queen. So what's interesting is Mordechai says umiodea. What do we know? What Mordechai is saying is, I want you to go to speak to the king, because. We don't know what's going to happen. We have no idea. Perhaps this is why you became queen in the first place. For this very moment. This is your opportunity to do the right thing. This is your opportunity to be a hero. But it's not because he doesn't say to her, I'm sure that you will, in fact, succeed. What's interesting is that in the Megillah, in the first chapter of the Megillah, it describes the advisors Tachashverosh. And one and one group of the advisors is called Chachamim Yodei Ho'itim. The, 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 the wise men of Achashverosh, Yodei Ho'itim, who, who, who know the times. In other words, there's something about, I mentioned this about the, the culture, which is that there's a deterministic element in the culture. You know the times means you know how things are going to progress. You see the signs of heaven, 
you know what's going to happen. And Mordechai totally rejects that way of thinking. Mordechai, the, the, the word to know is like, the word to know is a governing word of the chapter. Mordechai knows X about the Jews. Esther knows Y about the court. Esther doesn't know about what's happening. With that, Now Mordechai says to Esther, What do we know? Who knows? Perhaps for this a time such as this, you have arrived at the, at, the, at the kingship. This is your opportunity. This is your task. And it's a very powerful statement. He also says something else. Don't be so sure that if you don't do anything, you'll be saved and the Jews will die. It may be quite the opposite. We don't know. We don't know which way things will fall. It's quite possible that some salvation will come at a later point in time from somebody else. Right now... He doesn't give that a maybe. What? He doesn't give that a maybe. Right, right. But, but, um, that's true. He no, doesn't he, give it a maybe. He's also saying that she is not safe. She herself is a Jew, and she will also be killed. Whether she's killed right. in month one or in month 12, right. she's going to share in there. Right. Right, he's suggesting that who says, don't think, don't imagine that you're safe or, or, or I'm safe. Beethoven is presumably himself. Don't be so sure that we're safe and they're going to be wiped out. It could be the opposite. You don't know. Possible one way, possible the other way. So you've got to do the right thing. And this is your opportunity. This is your moment in time to do the right thing. This is your assignment in life to, uh, to do the right thing. So Esther responds here, this is the great moment of the Megillah. Says, fast me for three days, we'll also fast. And she says, and Uvachain. In truth, I will go to the king Asherlo Kadat, against the dot. If I perish, I perish. So there is, this is actually very interesting on several different levels. First of all, she makes it clear. She's far from convinced she's going to do it. And in fact, she says, I will break the law. She earlier had said, you can't do it. It's against, it's against, it's against, against the law. Apart from the danger, it's against the law. And what, now what she's saying is, I will do it. I'll do the right thing, even though it's against the law. But not because I assume that I will succeed. Kasher Avadati Avadati hardly suggests that she's assured success. Quite the opposite. It sounds like, not so much if I perish or when I perish. It sounds like, well, in other words, it's unlikely I will succeed. Nonetheless, I will do what, I'll do the right thing at this point in time. And here we come once again to the story of Joseph, which is constantly being referenced in the, in, the, in the Megillah, and the story that's being referenced over here is the story where Yaakov, the brothers come back to Yaakov, and remember that um, they come back to Yaakov and one of the brothers is not there. Shimon was taken hostage by Yosef, and they come back and they open up their sacks and they have all kinds of money in the sacks. And Yaakov says, what is this? You have money? The brother's missing, you have money. And they say the only way we can go down to Mitzrayim and get Shimon back and get food is if we bring down Binyamin with us. So Yaakov is very unhappy with this, to put it mildly. He says, listen, Yosef is missing, Shimon is missing, and all these things happen to me. So he refuses to let them go. 
And the famine is, there's a famine. They're waiting and waiting until Yehuda speaks up. And Yehuda says, send the boy with me. I'll take responsibility. Shukhar Nariti, send the boy with me. And I'll take responsibility. And we, we should have tarry with delaying. We shouldn't delay, etc., etc. So, Yaakov agrees. Yaakov says, okay, take a gift, take a mincha. God should give you a blessing. Vani, as for me, kasher shokolti shokalti. If I am bereft, I am bereft. Nikasher shokolti shokalti is exactly what uh, Esther says over here. Right? So then the Megillah see this is the turning point of the Megillah. Esther's agreeing to go to the to the to the king is the turning point. Going to the king, even though it's far from assured that um, they'll be successful. Kasher avadati avadati, and the story takes the Yosef story. And that's not about Yosef, it's about Yaakov and Yehuda. It's the idea that Yehuda is going to go to the Viceroy, he requests Yaakov's permission to, to take Binyamin with him, take responsibility. So the Megillah sees that as one of the great moments in the Yosef story, actually. Yeah? It's an interesting, I don't know if this is relevant at all, but it's an interesting thing in my mind that... The story of the first queen is one in which she breaks a law by not going to the king when she's summoned. Now we have a right. queen who is also breaking the law by going to the king when right. she's not summoned. Right, good point. So there's like a literary completion of the circle there. It's a very good point. It's true. It's what? Why Esther needed to be scared. Right. Well, it's clear why you... do that. Well, it's, it's clear that... I mean, everybody has to be scared. The fact of the matter is... And this actually is a very important point about the Megillah. In the Megillah, the person who appears more than anybody else in the Megillah is Achashverosh. And what is clear about Achashverosh is that his so-called policies don't exist. He has no policies. His policies are all about himself. And what happens when you have a, a ruler that's totally about himself is that everybody around him, there are many problems with it, obviously, but one of them is that everybody around him is always trying to figure out what he's thinking, to please him. And you see this in the Megillah, actually, in several places. One of them is very interesting. Later in the Megillah, after Mordechai was supposed to be killed by Haman, because Haman can't wait a few months to kill him. He's got to kill him right away before he has his meal. And then that night, the king can't sleep, etc. So Haman goes to the banquet. The king and Esther is there. What do you want, Esther? The king said, you, keep, you, say, you have something to request from me. What do you want? I want my life and the life of my people. Because someone is out to destroy, to kill me and kill, destroy my people. So the king says, who is that person? Oh, a terribly wicked person is wicked Haman. So the king stands up, goes outside to the courtyard. And when he comes back, he sees Haman pleading with Esther on the bed there. He says, what? He said, you would ravish the queen in my presence? So they covered up Haman's face. And then the next verse, Charvona says, you know, Haman built a gallows in his own house, 50 cubits high. Right? He did it for Mordechai, who spoke well of the king. So the king says, hang, hang him on the gallows. So Haman is hanged on the gallows. Always wondered, Charvona seems to know the story, right? He knows that he doesn't say anything. He opens his mouth up when he realizes that the king is out to get Haman. So the moment the king is out to get Haman, and suddenly he 
fuel on the fire. Oh, you know what? He even built a even built a gallows in his own house to kill Mordechai, who spoke so well of you. But no one is saying anything to the king before that. In other words, you have a society where the king is all powerful, and everybody around the king is trying to figure out what they think the king would want. That's how this works. And in, in, in Gilead, it's very funny on occasion. But that's exactly the way it works. Yeah. It's also like when the when Yosef is in prison and he interprets the dreams and he says to the, the wine steward, tell Pharaoh about me, so it'll be good for me, like help me. The guy doesn't speak up before Pharaoh actually needs someone to interpret the dreams. That's right. when he remembers Yosef that's because true. it works for him to do it then, but he wouldn't right. say it before that because it's like going to the king uninvited. That's correct. That's for sure. I'm not sure that's exactly identical to what I'm saying, but it's certainly very true that he forgets three days later. He remembers two years later. So he, he basically forgets because it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for him. So but the point I'm making is related but different, which is that you have a situation where everybody around the king is trying to figure out what the king might want. The king didn't say anything. Same with Vashti. Vashti was thrown out. And then the king's upset about this. And then young men in the court say, why don't we just gather all these young women into the palace? Right? And the king, oh, good idea, says the king. So they're thinking what the king might might want. And that's the story of Chavona, and that's the way it, it, something very central to the book. So Esther says they should fast, I also fast. And then the last verse of chapter 4, Vayavor Mordechai, Vayaskecho Asher Tzivta Olav Esther. That's a very interesting verse. Mordechai passed over. And he did all that Esther commanded him to do. So now, what does that mean? What is the significance of that? So here there are, the Megillah has two heroes, Mordechai and Esther. And they work together very well. Mordechai is the one who understands what has to be accomplished. He has the insight in terms of what has to be accomplished. But he doesn't know how to accomplish it. His advice to Esther was terrible advice. Namely, go to the king and beg him for your people. Because that will never work. Because what would you say to the king? It's not right, it's not ethical, it's not fair, it's not just. Those are categories that don't apply, Tachashverosh. Couldn't care less. Who cares? Is it good for me or bad for me? That's his only... That, that. So Esther understands, of course, that simply going to the king and begging for the people can't possibly work. So Esther has a different plan. And her plan... It's not to speak well of the Jews. Her plan is to get Ahasuerus to focus on the enemy of the Jews and to convince him that the enemy of the Jews is also his enemy. And she does this by virtue of two party invitations. She invites him to two parties. First of all, she risks her life. She stands in such a place that the king can see her, invites her in. Very, very risky. And when she gets in, the king understands there must be some extreme need here that she went through this procedure to get to see the king. What do you want? Half the kingdom is yours. What do I want? I want you and Haman to come to a party. I'll tell you what the party, what I want. So the king says, hurry up, bring Haman quickly. And Haman comes to the party. And then the king says, okay, Esther, tell me what you want. What do I want? through my request, what I really want, etc., etc. Here's what I want. You and Haman come tomorrow to a second party. Tomorrow I will do what the king requests. 
So that's what she does. She doesn't beg. Two party invitations. First party invitation, and at the first party, a second party invitation. Now the question is, what happened after the two party invitations? So it says with Haman, Haman Chapter five. Haman left the second, left the party, very happy. What happens? But as he's leaving the party, he sees Mordechai, the Jew, in the gate of the king. Right? So he has to restrain himself. He's so angry. And he goes back to his family. He brings everybody together. He starts to talk about his favorite topic, which is Haman. And he says, you know, you know how important I am. I've been promoted, another promotion. And the queen only invited me together with the king. And even for tomorrow, I'm also invited. All this is worth nothing to me. As long as I see Mordechai the Jew sitting in the gate. That implies he's no longer wearing sackcloth. Right. That does imply. That's correct. Right. That once she takes on the role, he goes back to the gate. They're making a different point, which is, why is it suddenly bother him so much now? Mordechai is going to be killed with all the Jews on the 13th of Adar. Well, suddenly, he can't, he can't stomach the idea that this guy is sitting in the gate. Why? If we assume that he sees him quite often. Because remember, everybody in the gate bows down to, bows down to Haman. So he's got to see Mordechai there. Why suddenly is this such a terrible thing that Mordechai the Jew is in the gate? So I suggest the following thought, which is that what, what has happened, what's changed, and this is Esther's plan, I believe, is to put these two people in collision course with each other. And she plays off both of the, in other words, Haman is we know to be an egomaniac to begin with, because he wants to kill an entire nation because one guy doesn't bow down to him. And by the way, it's obvious in the Megillah, that bowing down to Haman is not actually about Haman altogether. It's about Achashverosh determining loyalty to Achashverosh, which takes the form of Haman. It's not about Haman. But Haman doesn't see it that way. Everybody else sees it. Why do you violate the king's command, they say to Mordechai in the gate. But for Haman, it's about Haman. So we know the guy is an egomaniac to start with. And now what Esther has done by inviting him to these parties, the second party, just Haman and the king. And what she wants Haman to begin to think is, maybe me and the king aren't, on, maybe we're sort of on the same level. The moment he thinks that, he's going to be in, dead. And suddenly, he can't stand that Mordechai is even there. So the people say to him, no problem, why don't you go to the king? First, let them make a gallows, 50 cubits high, verse 14. Tomorrow, and Melech, and tomorrow, tell the king. And they'll hang Mordechai on, the, on it. And you go to the king's party very happy. So the matter pleased Haman. It was good in Haman's eyes. He constructed the gallows. So what's interesting is that the people responding to are picking up on, on what Haman says. They don't say, tomorrow you will request of the king. Esther goes to the king, so he's requesting. Bakasha, Sheila, these are requests. When they speak to Haman, tomorrow tell the king. You don't tell the king anything. And see, he also builds the gallows before he requests. He doesn't wait. He assumes that the king will go along with his plan. Why not? He's such an important person. The queen invites him and the king together, now to a second party. 
So that's as far as Haman is concerned. He's taking the egomaniac and propping him up, making him even more of an egomaniac, with the hope he may begin to think that he could be king. And if he thinks that, or in any way suggests that to the king, you can forget Haman. That's as far as Haman is. What about as far as the king is concerned? What is his response to this invitation to Haman alone with the king? That's the next verse. That night the king could not sleep. And this raises a question about how you read the Megillah in general. It's a very good question. I'll deal with it maybe next week. How do you read the Megillah in general? You can read the Megillah. You certainly can read the Megillah. It's a viable reading. But what you have over here is a, um, a story which is totally random. That was, that night the king couldn't sleep. He upset stomach, who knows why. He couldn't sleep. No reason is given. That's one way to read the book in general. Random. But there's another way to read the book, which is not random. There's a reason he can't sleep, which is something that's bothering him. And what is bothering him is, why is this guy invited by the queen with me two times? So, he opens up the record books. And he's looking, he's looking for something on Haman. He can't find anything on Haman. Haman is queen. But he finds something else. The enemy of Haman. The enemy of Haman saved the king's life. And Haman wants to kill the enemy of Haman. The enemy of, right? Haman wants to kill the enemy of Haman who saved the king. So when the king discovers this, in other words, king in gen- kings in general, I'm not saying he's paranoid, but we, he has good reason to be paranoid, given the fact that in the second chapter of the book, we know there was a palace revolution. Big Ton and Teresh wanted to kill the king. So it wouldn't be surprising if there's a, he's a ruler who people want to remove, want to get rid of. So he has reason to be concerned. And again, we know we've encountered this truth. The people that are most dangerous are the ones that are closest to you. What do we know about Haman? Nothing on Haman. But what about Mordechai? Mordechai saved the king's life. What was done to reward him? Nothing was done. And at that moment, Haman has come early in the morning to tell the king... To tell the king that he wants to have Mordechai killed right away so he can um, can enjoy his meal, you know what I mean? Then we have one of the funniest scenes of the Megillah where he enters into the palace. The king says, who's, who, who's in the courtyard? Bahaman Ba. And then, what's interesting is, in the conversation of chapter 6, Haman doesn't actually get a word in. The king does all the talking. Haman only responds. In fact, when you read chapter 6, it's interesting, read chapter 6, Haman comes into the court, and you expect, and you expect the next word to be Haman, because he came in to tell the king. But no. What should be to the one the king wishes to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So I'll tell you what should be. The one the king wishes to honor, which is himself, he thinks, you should take the horse of the king and the clothing and the crown and have somebody, important person, parade this fellow around the city. In other words, what does it mean? Now, here's the question about Achashverosh, which is a big question. What do you make of Achashverosh? Is he a fool? Or is he not a dope at all? He's a very clever person. Mark says he's a Melch Tipesh or a Melch Rosh. Is he a wicked man or is he a fool? Now you can be both at the same time. It doesn't have you can't those are not contradictory. 
But the point of fact, when, when King asked Haman the question, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? There are two ways to read that question. One is that the king is actually asking a question. It's an innocent question. Because Haman has come in, he's one of his advisors. That's one possibility. Or you could say differently, that the king is actually, the king knows what Haman's thinking. And the king is actually testing Haman. What are you thinking? What do you want, Haman? And the moment he says the king's horse and the king's and the clothing and the crown. Because when the king responds, he says, take the clothing and take the horse. Doesn't mention the crown, as Rashi notes. In other words, he really is thinking about becoming king. So Esther, what Esther succeeds in doing is making the paranoid king more paranoid and making the egomaniac more of an egomaniac and sets them on a collision course. The king, by the way, who's so interested in, in, in honoring Mordechai, still has every intention, presumably, of killing Mordechai in a few months. He hasn't rescinded the decree. So it doesn't sound like it's so much about honoring Mordechai. It sounds a lot more like it's putting down Haman. And Haman never gets a word in. He never gets to say to the king anything. His people in his house, because they're picking up on what Haman says, why don't you tell the king tomorrow what to do? And you can enjoy the meal. And the king says to Haman, hurry up, he says. Hurry up and take, take that, hurry up and get the horse and get the clothing and parade. Hurry up because we have a 12 o'clock dinner appointment. You better rush and honor this guy right away because we, remember, you're invited for dinner. So this is really the downfall. But it raises the interesting problem about Achashverosh himself. How do you read the whole Megillah? In other words, do you see this guy as just a dope? Or do you see him as he's not a dope at all? He's a very clever person. Now, I'll give you an example. Of, there are several good examples in the Megillah where you can read it both ways. Later on in the Megillah, Esther goes to the king, and she Haman's been killed. Esther goes to the king and says... Please revoke the letters you sent out. Svarim, revoke them. Because after all, Haman, Haman's been killed. He's a wicked man. The Jews are innocent. Right? So just revoke. And she, and she puts it in terms of herself. Because how could, I, how could I live with you if my people are being destroyed? It's never put in moral terms, by the way. It's, I'll be a very unhappy camper, she says. You won't enjoy my company. If I'm in, constantly in mourning thinking about my people who perish. So the king says to Esther, you know what he says? Listen. We can't revoke the, the letters because we're sealed with the king's seal. Anything sealed with the king's seal cannot be revoked. But I'll do something else for you. I'll write a second set of letters which contradict the first set of letters. In the second set of letters, I'll make it clear that in the war of the Jews against everybody else, the Haman's people or whatever, that I support the Jews. So when you read that, there are two ways to read it. One way to read it is that, what the King's a fool. Not just the king being a fool, it's that the story is a very funny story which makes no sense. I mean, I can't revoke it, but I can issue a second contradictory set of letters. So what's the difference between a second contradictory set of letters and revoking it? That's one way to read the book. It's hilarious. It's a piece of utter stupidity. That's the initial thinking of that. But in point of fact, I don't think that in this case is the better interpretation. Because let's say you're King Achashverosh, okay? You have been convinced that Haman actually had designs on the throne, which may even be true, by the way. Who knows what this guy's thinking, you know? And you get you killed Haman. You got rid of Haman, you hanged him, whatever. Haman 
has purchased an army. 10,000 talents of silver. He's got a whole army out there. Let me ask you a question. Do you want this army to be present in your 127 states? If you're King Ahasuerus, why would you want Haman's army to have allegiance to the man who was your enemy? Try to unseat you, he thinks. Why would you want this army to, to be allowed to survive? So he has a very simple way to get rid of the army. He's not going to kill them himself. If he, if he does what Esther requests him to do, which is call off the war, that's what Esther asked. We love peace. Peace now. We love peace. We don't want a war. That's what she says. We love peace. The king says, I'm very sorry. What could we do? There has to be a war. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I support the Jews in the war. It has the effect of getting the Jews to kill off his enemies. It reminds me very much of what you have in the story of Yosef. The story of Yosef, and we've seen this so many times, but the story of Yosef, the people, Pharaoh has dreams. Nobody can interpret the dreams, except for Joseph. And Joseph says, here's the interpretation. There's going to be seven years of plenty. During the seven years of plenty, you will gather in all the food. I mean, people have to eat something, but surplus, the enormous surplus. You will gather it under the, your control and guarded and protected by your officers. And during the years of famine, you will control the food and you will parcel it out to, for the people. Says Pharaoh, brilliant idea. And you should find someone. It's going to have to start right away. you got to find someone right away. Who's, find a wise person who's wiser than you, Joseph. Fine. Now, Pharaoh had two sets of dreams. The first set of dreams was about... He had two dreams. One of the dreams has to do with the cows. Seven weaned cows and the seven healthy cows. That's the first dream. The second dream was about the sheaves of the land. The seven unhealthy sheaves and the seven good sheaves. So he dreams about cattle and land. Then the Torah says that the years of famine began and the people cried out to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to them, chapter 41... Go to Joseph. Do what he tells you to do. It's a very strange verse. What does he tell you to do? Pay your money and we'll get your food. So it doesn't say what he tells you to do. But in chapter 47 of the Chumash, it tells us what Joseph told them to do. What he told them to do was this. After one year, the people have no more money. They run out of money in one year. I presume they ran out of money in one year is because they're charging a, high, a big price. Otherwise, why do they have no money? Charge a low price and you have money. So they have no money. So they go to Joseph after one year, we have no money. We have, we're gonna, we'll starve to death. What should we do? Says Joseph, Pharaoh will sell you the food for your cattle. So they give their cattle to Pharaoh. After one year, they have no cattle left. We have no cattle, we have no money. What should we do? I'll tell you what you do. Give Pharaoh your land. You'll be sharecrappers on Pharaoh's land. So in effect, Pharaoh's dreams, the first was about the cattle. The second was about the land. And Joseph and Pharaoh understand from day one that if you control all the food, you have a total monopoly on the food, you'll be able to secure what Pharaoh dreams about, which is all the cattle and all the land, which is exactly what happens. So who actually enslaves the Egyptian people? Of course, Pharaoh wouldn't do such a thing. Such a good, benevolent leader. Go to Joseph. Do whatever Joseph tells you to do. And that's the story in, in the Megillah as well.
Achashverosh wants to get rid of his enemies, his presumed enemies, the armies of Haman. But he doesn't want to kill them himself. Why should he? Let the Jews do the dirty work. He comes back. How many of the Jews killed today, he says? How many of the Jews killed? Of course, when you read the Megillah, you see the Jews don't want to kill anybody, actually. Esther said, revoke the decree. We don't want a war. Peace-loving people, no war. No, the king says, it's got to be a war. It's got to be a war. Can't revoke that to seal with the king's seal. Got to be a war. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I support the Jews in their battle. So this is not a tipesh, actually. And the truth of the matter is that this interpretation is strong. I'll tell you something else about the king not being a dope. I think you can, you can read both ways. Chapter 6, when the king can't sleep at night, he has to bring the record books before the king, and they're read to the king. And they discover... That Mordechai saved, Asherigid Mordechai, a big ton of, and Mordechai had saved, uh, had told the king about big ton, because Mordechai told Esther, it was written down in Mordechai's name. So the king says, what was done to Mordechai, right? What was done for Mordechai concerning this? Nothing. On Nasai Moldavar, nothing was done. And the king said, who's in the court? By the way, when you're reading the text, we read the words. But we don't have someone saying the words. Mi can be read two different ways, actually. Mi can be a question. Who's in the court? Who's in the court? It's very early in the morning. King was up all night. Who's in the court means, is there somebody I can, is there an advisor out there? Someone I can consult with? That's one possibility. Or mi could mean something else. Who's in the court? Who's standing outside? Because remember, what he just read was how two people in the court try to kill him. Shomri Hasaf. So Mibe Chatzer could mean, who's out there? Who's out there at this time? At this crazy morning. time. It's yeah. five in the morning. Who's out there now? How money come to tell the king? Now, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? Haman, of course, says to himself, it's got to be me. Parade him around with the clothing, with this, with the horse, with the... Hurry up. Take the clothing and the horse, as you spoke. And do this for Mordechai the Jew, who sits in the gate of the king. Now what's interesting is that when you read the chapter, the chapter begins, he read what Mordechai had, had told the king, and Mordechai had told about Bigtan and Teresh. It doesn't call him Mordechai the Jew. And when the king asked the people, what was done for Mordechai? It doesn't say Mordechai the Jew. But when he talks to Haman, now he does he call Mordechai the Jew, he knows exactly where he is. Mordechai HaYehudi HaYoshev Bashar HaMelech. The one that sits in the gate, not any old Mordechai, but the one in the gate. This guy knows a lot more than you think. He's no dope. He, he fully gets it. And he basically, of course, he wants to, again, depending how you read the book. The truth of the matter is that when the king... When Haman approaches the king and says, there's a bunch of people out there that have, don't keep your rules, don't keep the laws, scattered, dispersed. King gives him this ring. Do whatever you want, he says. Now what the king never asked Haman was, actually, it's unbelievable. Who are they? The king never asked him who they are. So there are two ways to read that. One is he's a dope. Well, you, don't, you don't know who you're trying to kill. So he's a tipesh. Okay, that's one way to read the book. He's a fool. But there's another way to read it, which is equally good, if not better. The king knows very well who he's talking about. But he doesn't want to ask that question. 
because he wants to be totally on Haman. So later on, when there's a very wicked man out there to kill my people, and the king can say, really? Who would do such a thing? Or a terribly wicked man, the wicked Haman. The Medrash said it very well. She's about to point to Achashverosh, and the angel pushes her hand towards, towards Haman. Because at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is, as bad as Haman may be, he can't kill anybody. He has no power to kill anybody. He can only kill when he gets the king's support. So the real enemy is, is, is Achashverosh. The only person to actually kill the Jews is Achashverosh. So what you have is a situation where he says to Haman, I, I don't want to hear about it. Just do whatever you want. He says the same thing, by the way, to Esther and Mordechai later. He says, you know what? I can't revoke the decrees. But write a, you write a second set of decrees. Right? And you, whatever you write is going to be good. It's exactly what he says to Haman. In each case, he absolves himself from responsibility by putting it on somebody else. So that's a very central question in the Megillah. There are two ways to read the book. One is the guy's just a dope. And what he does make no sense whatsoever. And the other way to read the Megillah at different turns is that he's not a dope at all. It makes complete sense. Total sense. And it's all about the same thing, which is staying in power and making sure that no blame can, can accrue to you. It's always someone else's responsibility. Whether it's Haman in the first instance, whether it's the Jews in the second, how many did the Jews kill? That's the way it works. And of course, Esther plays along with it because what choice do you have? You have no choice. Because he controls everything. So that's a very basic question. Okay, so let's just summarize what do we have here so far. Touched on many different things. Chapter 4 is a great turning point in the Megillah. It's when Esther agrees, not simple, but she agrees to risk her life. And Mordechai Vayavon, Mordechai Vayas, Kecho Asher Tzivtah, Esther, when Mordechai passes over and does what Esther commands him, from that point on, it's the, the ball's in Esther's court. Because Mordechai may have the knowledge that what somebody's got to be done, but only Esther knows how to do it. Left to Mordechai's idea, the Jews won't survive. Because Mordechai says, you go beg the king. You can't just beg the king. So you've got to, you've got to create in the king's head the idea that the real enemy is somebody else. And in fact, we have a common enemy. Haman is your enemy, and it's also our enemy. And only afterwards can you go in, afterwards, in chapter 8, she begs the king. And there, I want to make a simple point about Achashverosh, which is this. Until Esther begs the king for her people in chapter 8, Haman's been killed already. There's not a shred of evidence in this book that the king has any thought to revoke the decree. None whatsoever. He left to his own statement, he will have all the Jews killed on the 13th of Adar. Maybe Esther and Mordechai he spares. But outside of that, he has no interest in that. So Esther has to approach him, and she puts it in personal terms. I, I, I can't survive with, with that. I, I won't be able to, I'll be so unhappy. Okay, you, you write up as, I can't, I can't revoke the decree, but you write a second set. And whatever you say is good. You, you take care of it. So that's Vayaskech Hashem. It's an interesting question about shared responsibility. Now I'm working now on a book on Sefer Shmuel, and what's interesting is, and I'll stop with this thought, Book of Shmuel has two kings. What I'm going to tell you now is actually also related to the Megillah. What I'm saying will be patently obvious, but believe me, it wasn't obvious to a lot of people. Not only does it have two kings, 
first king of Israel is King Saul. Second is King David. They're not just two different people. They're two different kinds of kingship. Because the kingship of David is an autonomous kingship. No one ever tells David what to do. David makes all of his own decisions. He has a prophet in his court to correct him when he veers off the path. True. But the prophet doesn't instruct him what to do. When it comes to Saul, that's different. The kingship of Saul was a joint kingship with Samuel. Shmuel was the prophet. Shaul was the king. They're supposed to work together. I maintain that that is the ideal kingship, actually, because the prophet tells you what God wants, and the king carries it out. Now, for whatever reason, it doesn't work, actually. It fails. It fails because the two can't work together. It fails because one tries to control the other, etc., etc. It fails because one of them never wanted kingship to begin with. Many reasons that it fails. But hypothetically, that was the right, the best way to go. A joint leadership fails. But where you have it working, actually, is right here in the Megillah. Because in the Megillah, it works perfectly. Mordechai, one call him a prophet. He's a prophet of sorts. He's a, he's a, he understands in the deepest way what has to happen. What has to happen. Um, and, uh, but he doesn't know how to make it happen. He has no clue how to make it happen. So the Esther is the character who makes it happen. Because she knows the king better than anybody. She lives in the palace. She's the queen. She knows this guy perfectly well. What will work and won't work. So, here you have an interesting case of a joint leadership that actually succeeds. Unusual, actually. All right, so we'll stop at this point then. Continue next week. Let me one or two more weeks on the Megillah. And then we'll move over to Pesach and the connection. Pesach and the, um, some very interesting ideas about the relationship between Purim and Pesach. Okay, we'll stop then. Thank you.